My name is Mark, and I'm a chapel-supported missionary. My family and I have the privilege of serving in the Middle East, and we have the privilege of being with you this morning. And many of you uh, know a bit about our history. Some of you don't. But the chapel holds a special place in my heart because two of the most significant events in my life are associated with this church. Uh, In 1999, my wife and I got married in this very room, and so that is exciting after 21 years. Uh, She's with me this morning with three of my children. The oldest has already started university in uh, Texas, so that's exciting. And then also both my wife and I uh, came to the Lord through the ministry of the preaching of God's Word and discipleship here at Cape Bible Chapel. And so this place just holds just a wonderful deep uh, memories, affection. We just love coming and visiting you. Um, Many of you actually, we've actually never met, never seen because the church is growing and changing. So it's our privilege to come and and see new faces, and it's our privilege to see those who have been around for a while. Did you notice how I did that without calling anybody whatever that could be? It's it's great. So here's what I'd like us to do. I'm going to pray And then I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 13 and Numbers chapter 14. That's in the Old Testament. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the saints that you have gathered together to hear your word. Lord, we are grateful that we have your word, that we can know how we should respond to you, how we should worship, how we should obey, how we should love. Thank you for the wonderful privilege of being able to gather here today. I do pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and in our minds, changing us, making us more into the people that you want us to be for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In a moment I'll read out of Numbers chapter 13, and when I do read, I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. If you don't have that translation, that's fine. There are a number of good translations, but just so you know, I'll be out of the NAS. You might be out of a different version. Nonetheless, follow along when we get to Numbers 13. But before we get to Numbers 13, I just want to give you a word. That word is failure. See, we don't like that word. Nobody wants to be called a failure. When somebody writes your biography or when you write your autobiography, when you tell people about yourself, you just don't want to use that adjective. You don't want to say, I'm a failure. You don't want people to say about you, you are a failure. It's just not something we enjoy, perhaps rightly so. But I think what is challenging for us this morning is that we're going to see a man whose life, by many people's standards, was a failure. See, we're going to study a a portion of the life of Caleb, and what we're going to see is that according to the world, he was a failure. But also according to many of the people of God, he was a failure. And and we just don't like that. that. That's uncomfortable for us to consider a man who failed. Perhaps you have often heard this definition of leadership. A leader is one who looks behind him and sees who's following him. What we're going to discover is that when Caleb looked behind him, he didn't find anybody following him. And so many people would call him a failure. But the Word of God teaches differently. In fact, the text today will offer us a stunning example 
of an individual who, quote, failed because he chose to trust God and follow him in full obedience. God took notice of Caleb. Let's get a quick preview of where we're going to go in this message by starting actually in Numbers 14 and in verse 24. And then we'll come back to Numbers 13. But Numbers 14 and verse 24, just so we know where we're going. This is the Lord speaking. And the Lord says, But my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. What we see there is we see both a commendation and a promise. God said, my servant, because he had a different spirit, because he followed me fully. The world said failure. Even many of his uh, people of God, if we could call them Christians at that time, this is before the cross, but the people who should have been following God, they condemned him, and yet God said, mine. And he has followed me fully. And so he promised to bless him based upon his obedience. Let's start back in Numbers 13. And what we're going to do first is I just want us to get a flavor for the story. Then we'll look again at God's assessment. And finally, at the actions of Caleb more specifically that enabled that, or that really were the basis for God's positive assessment. Let's look at the story. Going back to Numbers chapter 13 and verse 1, we're looking at the story of a man who merited divine approval, even though some would call him a failure. 13 verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourselves men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. Verse 3, So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the sons of Israel. So this is the nation. They'd come, out of, uh, they'd come out of Egypt. They'd spent probably a little over a year in the wilderness so far. And so this is probably the beginning of their second year. And God has brought them to the edge of the promised land, what they had been promised, the expectation, the hope that they had had for so long. And they're there. And God says, let's send out a, a little spy team. But before we get there... Let's notice what kind of men were sent out. In verse 2, it says what? It says at the end of verse 2, everyone a leader among them. And so when Moses was putting together his team to go and check out the land, he looked for the best. It wasn't just like the all-church sign-ups, which, I mean, we all do that, but it was like there were, there were requirements. These were the leaders. These were the elite among the men, among the people. These were the people that everybody looked up to. Those are the ones who are going to go and spy out the land. It says at the end of verse 3, who were heads of the sons of Israel. They were not only looked up to, they already had leadership positions. So notice the quality of the men that were being sent to spy out the land. Now to me, that also brings up a quick question. When you sent to spy out the land, and you kind of want to go, was God not what, God wasn't sure what was over the hill? I mean, was God going... I'd like to bring you in, but let's make sure it's safe first. Why does God do these things? Well, as a a quick side note, God often does things that he already knows the answer to. He, he, He often asks his people to respond 
to something he already knows. See, because God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. God was not looking to gain knowledge. Rather, God was giving an opportunity for his people to know their own hearts and to know their own faith. Perhaps the greatest example in the Old Testament was when a a man named Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Was God wondering? Don't know what he's going to do. Is he going to kill him? Is he not? No, that's not what God was doing. Rather, what it was was an opportunity for Abraham to know the strength of his own faith, to know his own heart. This is what God is doing with his people. He is sending them out to test their faith so that they might know whether they will follow God fully. This is God enacting his redemptive plan, carrying out his purpose. You see, history is not about us. It's about what God is doing. And so God was in the process of bringing out his people from Egypt into the land of promise so that eventually the Messiah would come. That was a whole lot of history there. And so he's not saying it's all about you. Rather, he's saying, how will you respond to me? We're going to skip verses 4 through 16 because it's just a list of the men who were sent into the land. It's an important list, as we'll, as we'll see, because it's a list of men who actually were the, the real failures in the story, not Caleb. In verses 17 through 20, we see that Moses kind of gives some specific instructions to his uh, little commando team. In verse 19, he says, look at the land. Is it good or is it bad? In verse 18, he said, look at the people. Are they strong or weak? Are there a lot of them or are there a few? In verse 20, he says, is the land fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? He said, make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. At the end of verse 20, now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. That's going to become important in just a moment. Verse 21 through 24, the spies actually go in and take a look. In verse 21, it says they went in and they spied out from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob. In verse 22, it says they went up from the Negev up to Hebron and and these different places that, that they went around. In verse 23, then they came to the valley of Eshkel and from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two men. I have always wanted to see those grapes. Do you read your Bible with imagination? Can you imagine? I mean, I love grapes. They're just this wonderfully sweet fruit. And you get a big cluster of grapes, you know, from the supermarket, and they're, you know, maybe maybe yay big. Two men pull between them, grapes hanging down. What was that like? Well, I don't know. I never thought about it. Skipped over that part. The Bible is full of wonderful things. So these men, they, they had these, these grapes and they were bringing them back. In fact, it says, the, the, if you look in the, the footnote on some of your Bibles, it'll tell you that the name of the place became Cluster. That They were so impressed with how big the grapes were, the, the cluster of grapes, that they named that place after it. It's like saying the place of many waters, the place of the big grapes. So that was verses 21 to 24. Now in verse 25, we get to the good part of the story because they've seen the land. They know what's there. They've got these, you know, this cluster of grapes that hangs down to the ground. And then they're going to go back and tell the people what we assume would be good news. Let's keep reading in verse 25. When they had, relear- when they had returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days. Now what does the 40 days tell us? It tells us that they got a good, long look. 
This wasn't like the two-minute trailer that you get and you're going, I'm not really sure what's going on here. No, 40 days, they got a good long look. They were up and down walking in the, in the valleys, up on the hills, picking the fruit, smelling the air. They, they knew what they were talking about. In verse 26, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They showed them the grapes. And this is what they told them. We went in. Now, before we go any further, I want to remind you of what you know, but you might just have forgotten temporarily. They didn't have technology back then. I'm speaking to you with the aid of technology, and so you can all hear me well. Some of you in your homes are, are hearing and seeing me. But they didn't have that. So remember, there's thousands upon thousands of people there. How would they have found out this news? Well, what I think would probably have happened is that the leaders would have kind of been at the center, and so the, the, the leaders would have been there, and the spies would have come in to give the reports, and then everybody else was just kind of spread out behind them. I rather imagine the, the, the senior uh, leaders and the, we can say the more important people were closer in, and everybody else is just kind of spread back out. Massive crowd. No social distancing going on whatsoever. Massive crowd. But what that means is the information travels differently. So you're all hearing every word I say. Massive crowd, thousands of thousands of people. And so they come up and they begin to talk, and a certain number of people can hear the, the sound of his voice, the guy giving the report. After that, the people in the back, or even in the middle probably, are dependent upon the, the person in front of them. What'd they say? What'd they say? So it's kind of like that old game that we used to call telephone. That was back when there was no such thing as a cell phone. You know, where you tell somebody a story, and then by the time you get to the end, you see how the story has evolved. So it's kind of just this, this running idea. So you need to understand that's what's going on here. And so it says, we went out to the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And there's just this wave of excitement because the people in the front hear that. And then this wave of excitement. So they're going, milk and honey, milk and honey, just kind of flows back through. And so there's this, it's like a, an energetic crowd. You guys ever been somewhere where there's a, an excited crowd? Not an angry mob, but an excited crowd at, at an event or a, a sporting thing or a concert. There's this energy there, and this is the positive energy. And so they're like, we've been out here in the wilderness for over a year. We were stuck in Egypt. And the, the milk and honey report comes back, and it flows through the crowd, and they're excited. This is wonderful. And, in the, in their, and some of them in the front could actually see the grapes. I don't believe that they could all see the grapes because there were thousands upon thousands of people. And so the people in the front see the grapes and they're like, wow, and they tell the people in the back. In the back. By the time it gets to the back, the grapes are the size of basketballs probably. You know how the, the stories evolve. I don't know. But so, so we've got these grapes, we've got this pomegranate, we've got milk and honey, and everybody's excited. And then you get to verse 28. Nevertheless, you know what nevertheless is? It's like putting on the brakes. You've all been there. You're riding in a car, and for some reason the driver has to put on the brakes. So you're going along, going along. So, That's what this is. There's this wonderful report going out, and then all of a sudden, nevertheless. Now, to us, it's just an innocuous word, but it's really somewhat of a rare phrase. It's a phrase that limits what has come before. Great report but kind of eh, limited by this phrase. In fact, in Amos chapter 9, verse 8, 
It's actually used. Uh, it says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. So we're talking about God's judgment here. But nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. So what you see there is that God would be talking about a massive judgment, and then he, in his graciousness, limits it. says, but I, I won't destroy these people. Here they're giving this good report, but then they limit their good report. It's wonderful, but... And remember, crowd mentality. So that also flows back through. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, flowing through the crowd, strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. Oh, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and they're, they're getting upset. Some of them don't even know who these people are, but the mob works that way. They had been all excited, and now they're getting all distressed. But here's what happens in verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people. That is so significant. Here's why. Remember, it's a mob mentality. Has anybody else in here lived among a Semitic people group? I live in the Middle East. They're exciting. They, they're, they're just a, a vivacious, emotions to the outside type of, type of people. And so when these reports are going around, they were not like Americans quietly sitting, listening, you know, waiting. There's this energy, there's this loudness. I lead the college and career group which is about 25 people. You wouldn't believe how I have to raise my voice to get control of 25 people. And so it says here, when Caleb quieted the crowd, this is what he did not do. <clears throat> Excuse me. That, that didn't happen. <clears throat> Please, can we all be quiet? Nobody would have even heard him. What Caleb would have had to do was yell! He would have had to say, La samahto! Izbitrido! Smaoni! which is Arabic for, if you please, listen up. He wouldn't have spoken Arabic, but he would have had to yell. He would have had to get out there and command the situation because they would not have listened otherwise. The crowd's turning ugly at this point. And so when it says Caleb quieted the people, he took a stand, boldly stepping out. And what did he say? He said, he said we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. Notice he didn't deny that there were big people. Notice he didn't deny that the cities were fortified. But what he did do is say, we shall do it. It says in verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him. And see, they weren't passing the mic back and forth. I rather imagine that there had been a report going on and Caleb's over here on one side going, no, 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 we can go up. But then the other guys, the, the spies who had been giving the poor report, are standing over here going, no, wait a second, Caleb. That's not right. Verse 31. We are not able to go up against these people, for they are too strong for us. So you've got these dueling leaders, dueling reports going on. And verse 32 seems to show that the bad report prevailed. So they came out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out. The land through which we have gone in spying out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw are men of great size. And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, a part of the Nephilim. 
And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Oh, we're just little grasshoppers. We're nothing. And you say, Mark, you're exaggerating. Look at verse 14, or uh, verse 1 of chapter 14. Then all the congregation lift up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. I'm not exaggerating. This was an out, uh, emotions to the outside, showing their despair and sadness type of people. But it gets worse. It gets worse? Yeah, it gets worse. It says, All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and they led the whole congregation, uh, and, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. See, what you think is, you know, if you've watched a movie, any kind of movie, they all follow the same plot. Life is bad, the hero gets up and does something, and life is good. Well, we just saw that the, the hero of the story, as it were, Caleb, tried to get up and do something, and they shouted him down. So you're like, this isn't going well. And then it's going from bad to worse, because it says, would that we had died out there, would that we had died in the, in the land of Egypt, which is where they'd been enslaved, would that we just died in the wilderness. This is not pretty. Then they go on, and they say, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? This is pretty bad here. Because what you see in verses 1 and 2 is that the people are crying and they're despairing and they're grumbling against Moses and the leadership and saying, hey, it would have been better to die. But in verses 3 and 4, they're really just rebelling against God. And in verse 4 it says, So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Now here's where I want to take you back for a moment and remind you of Numbers chapter 13, verses 2 and 3 where these were the leaders and these were the heads of the families, heads of the tribes. These were not the rabble-rousers. These were not the, you know, I'll show up on the Christmas and Easter type of people. These were the committed leaders of the people. In, in today's modern church, we would actually call them the elders and deacons probably. Sorry, guys. But you need to see and understand that the rebellion against God came from within. This wasn't an external threat. This was an internal one. This was a lack of faithfulness. And so they're, they're talking about mutiny. They're talking about going against God and returning to Egypt. Fear makes you irrational. Lack of faith does the same thing. In verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembled congregation of the sons of Israel. Why did they fall on their faces? It's not exactly clear. It could be that they were humbling themselves before the people pleading with them, but it could also be that they were humbling themselves before God, fearing judgment, because if we had time, we could look at Numbers 12, where when the people spoke against God's leadership, God struck Miriam with leprosy. And so it could be that Moses and Aaron are saying, God, please. But nonetheless, they fall on their faces and then in verse uh, 6, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. We don't do that today to express our grief, but that's what they did then. Just, just ripping their garments. And by the way, they're in the wilderness, no Walmart clothes, not sure where they're going to get replacements, but that's how upset they were. Verse 7, 
They spoke to all the congregations of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we have passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. They call them out. And you think, this is where the story turns around. This is the good part. That other one, it was just to keep us involved where, uh, where Caleb had tried and he had failed and the people had rebelled worse. But now he's going to turn it around. Now he's going to kind of command the people and they're going to go, oh yeah, we're, you're right, Caleb. You're right, Joshua. We shouldn't rebel. We're going to follow God. Verse 10. All the congregation said to stone them with stones. So he had gone from, I wish we would just die out here. I, I think we should go back to, to Egypt to, let's kill our leadership. Let's kill the ones who are calling us to follow God. I remind you, this was an internal movement, not external pressure. You see, the people of God, which is us, when we are not careful to follow God as we should, we can take very foolish actions, even leaders. And, that, and so that's a, a danger for all of us. We're not going to go through it uh, for sake of time, but in verse 11 and 12 of, of chapter 14, we see God's pronouncement of judgment in verses 13 uh, through 19, we see Moses interceding and pleading with God. In verse 20 and following, we see that God relents and, and really makes his will known. But then in verse 39 through 45, you see more stubborn, foolish rebellion. The story does not end well with the people doing what they should. They do not respond to God. Caleb failed, as it were. And so we're not looking at Caleb's success in the eyes of the people. Rather, we're looking at Caleb in the sight of God. So that's point one. That's just the story. Point number two is God's assessment of this so-called failure. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 14 and verse 25, the verse that we started with. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 24, sorry. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. This is God speaking. This is God looking at this man and commending him for his faithfulness. And the first thing he says is, my servant. Now, in modern day, modern parlance, we don't really consider servant to be that exalted of a position. But if you think back to a different time, it wasn't the position that was so exalted, it was who you were serving. So to be a servant, as it were, of a great and mighty king was an honor. And here, Almighty God is saying, my servant. See, it's very significant. It's especially significant if you were to know that up until this point, there'd only been two men who'd been given that commendation of my servant. The first one was Moses himself, and then Abraham one time in Genesis 26 had been referred to as my servant. So when God looks at Caleb and says, my servant, this is an especial commendation where God is pointing out Caleb as someone special, the emphasis is on the mine. 
not on the servant. He, he is mine. God is claiming him and pointing out his faithfulness. Oh, that we would be that way. Oh, that God would look at us and say, mine. And in Christ he does, if we truly know him. But might he also be pleased with the way in which we respond to him on an ongoing basis. You see, God saw Caleb. God wasn't ignorant. God didn't get a, a modified report. God saw all that happened. God knows all that happened. So God saw the, quote, failure, and yet he looked at him and he said, he's mine. Why? In verse 24 again, because he has had a different spirit. Now, that word different, it's not a special word at all. I mean, sometimes in the Bible you look at words and you go, that's a special word. It has great theological significance. The word different just means different. And so it's not the, the word in and of itself that carries the meaning, it's the context. For example, the word different is used in Genesis 41 when it says, behold, seven other cows came up from the Nile. We're talking about the dream there. Okay, when it says seven other cows, the word other is the same word as our word different, it means other cows. There were seven cows and there were seven other different cows. It just means these cows, not those cows. In Genesis chapter 8, it says, So he waited another seven days, this would be Noah, and then he sent out the dove from the ark. That word another is our word different. It just means seven additional days, seven days that weren't the previous seven days. So he waited seven more, seven different days. But the word can also carry a significant theological implication. For example, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And that word other is our word different. That word had enormous significance there because God is saying, I am your God and all these different gods, they're not your God. And you, you cannot worship them, you cannot follow them. So it's the context that really helps us understand this word different. And it's really referring to a different quality. He said he had a different spirit. These people had one spirit. My servant Caleb had another. Now let me give you a little preview, or a little insight rather, into the world in which we live. In the Middle Eastern country in which we live, if I go into, let's say, a hardware shop, there's a way to ask for things. It's very particular. Um, and it almost sounds racist. They don't intend it that way, but this is just how their culture works. If I go in and I want something that's cheap uh, because that's all I have or I don't want to pay a lot of money for it, I literally go in and I say, give me something Chinese. That's how I go into the store. Give me something Chinese. Now, we all know that many high-quality goods come out of China, but in their minds, there's a category for different. If I go into a store and I want something quality, I say, I, I refer to it European. I, I usually say, go in, and I say, give me something from Germany. Oh, Germany. And they say, well, I don't have anything from Germany, but I got something from Italy. And, and so it's not meant to be racist per se. It's just the way they categorize different. These are of a quality, and those are of a quality. I don't advise you try that here. I don't think it'll work. But that's how we do it in the country in which I live. Here, when God says different, it has enormous impact because he is saying all those people were of a particular attitude and Caleb was of a very different attitude. 
And so the word has enormous import. And really, it wasn't so much a theological evaluation of Caleb. It wasn't so much evaluating his theology as he was evaluating his moral character, how he had responded to God, and how had he responded. Well, verse 24 again, it says, He has followed me fully. See, unlike the rest, Caleb had followed God fully. And see, I I think there's particular significance in that word fully. And that one kind of gets me right here. Because I want to follow God to a certain degree. I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, will say that. I want to follow God until it's going to impact fill in the blank in your life. Now, I'm going to follow God, but following God fully, all the time, in every place, when the rest of the people of God seem to not want this, again, remember the context. Caleb wasn't taking a stand against the world out there. Caleb, unfortunately, had to take a stand against the people in here. Followed God fully. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. All is all of us. Men, how will you lead your families? Will you follow God fully? Will your children know that you follow God? Or they know that you follow God when it's convenient and easy. And when it gets hard, that's where dad gives up. Moms, how do you follow God? What kind of attitude do you project to your children? Because by the way, mothers have in many ways a much greater impact on the family than fathers ever do. Because you're with your children. And you're loving and gentle and sweet. And some of us guys struggle with that a little bit. How will you love your children, love your husband, do your studies? We've got a group of guys down here. You look like you're about college age. Am I guessing right? It's hard when you get my age and, you know, you're far away like that. I'm not sure. You look like you're about college age. How will you follow God at SEMO? I'm a SEMO grad. Let me tell you, most of the people I went to school with, they didn't care about God. But you know what? Those people don't know Jesus yet. What about those people who should know better? Will you follow God fully even when they won't? This is not about making enemies within the church. This is about deciding who your greatest allegiance is to, God or people. Because God looked at Caleb, knew he was a failure, knew he had stood against all the people, and what God didn't say was God didn't say, well, come on, Caleb, can't you, can't you just go with him a little bit? All right, Caleb, you have to be so harsh. You have to draw that, that hard line in the sand. What God said is you are different, and he meant that positively. You followed me fully. A verse that I've remembered for many years because my father loved it is Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Choose. Choose. What kind of failure do you want to be? I think we should learn to fail a little bit more like Caleb. Choose, will you follow your God? And we know that that verse, verse 15, concludes 
with Joshua saying, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What a powerful statement. Who will you choose? Because that is a choice that you make every day. It's not a choice that you made at one time in history when God in his graciousness saved you and you prayed to become a child of God. That's a, a, a wonderful start. But every single day, you will be confronted with the world. You will be confronted with other gods. You will be confronted with competing priorities. Who will you serve? God's assessment was, that's the kind of person I want. Say, wow, what is it that Caleb really did? Let's look, at, let's look back briefly at, at Numbers 13 and verse 30. We'll just pick up a few things. There's so many wonderful things as Caleb responded to his God. In verse 30, which we've already read, it says, Caleb quieted the people. I'm not going to shout again, okay? I know that disturbed some of you. I won't do that. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. What was the basis of Caleb's strong conviction that victory was assured? Because everybody else was saying, we can't do it. And he'd seen with his own eyes the obstacles, the, the, the tall men, the, the many fortified cities. What was the basis of Caleb's assurance? The only thing it could have been was the word of God. See, in, in Exodus chapter 3, when God was talking to his servant out of the burning bush, it says this, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8, So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land. Genesis chapter 15, another servant. This is Abraham. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, 18, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. What was the basis of Caleb's strong conviction? What enabled him to stand firm in the face of all that opposition? It was a settled conviction that the word of God is true and accurate, and he held on to that. He took God at his word. And see, because what was really happening is that those other people, probably not intentionally, but in reality what they were doing is they were doubting the faithfulness and the power of God. Because they said, we can't go up. We can't do it. They're too big. Their God had promised them, I will do it. He didn't say, you're so smart, you're so wonderful, you're such intelligent people, you're going to go up. God said, I will do it. And Caleb, on that basis, took God at his word, stood against the people, and he spoke up for what was right. Right there, he had to get out in front of the whole crowd, put himself out there, as it were, go against the flow and say, no. See, this is not a call to be foolish. Rather, it is a call to be courageous. It is not a call to be impetuous. Rather, it is a call to be bold. Not a call to be pushy, but a call to be determined. Not a call to be arrogant, but a call to be fully committed to God's word and to fully follow him by obeying his word. Do you know the word of God? To the degree that you don't know the word of God, you will suffer because you will lack the courage and the conviction to stand in the face of difficult times. 
Dear Christian, you must know the Word of God. You must know your God, and you must know what He has promised. You must trust Him. You must take Him at His Word so that you have a solid foundation upon which to stand. See, because God is your only foundation. Remember, it was the leaders and the heads that failed. Let me do a little exercise that's probably a bit weird for some of you. I would like you to take just a few moments, and I'm being serious, look at the people around you. Make eye contact with them. Get their faces fixed in your mind. For those of you who might be at home, this might be a little awkward. There might not be a lot of you in the room. Do what you can. Get, get somebody's face fixed in your mind. You see it? You got them right there? They will fail you. This guy is such an encouragement. <laughs> they will fail you. Your leaders will fail you. Your spouse, your children, your grandfather, your grandmother, everyone will fail you. Why? Because we are flawed people. And we do. The only one, the only one who will never fail you is God. And the only way in which we can truly know him is by his word. And as we study his word, as we learn about God and how much he loves us, how faithful he is, how strong he is, <clears throat> this is what we can stand on. Nothing else. Everything else in life, everybody else in life will fail us. This is our sure foundation. I hope they don't fail you, but I'm pretty sure they will. But God will not. And Caleb took a stand the right way. See, Caleb wasn't swept along with everyone else. He didn't get caught up in the peer pressure. But he took a stand because he knew his God. He knew what was right. He said, this is who I am. I follow God. You know, I remember a particular time years and years ago that I had a conversation with my father at a, at a difficult period where I felt things weren't going well. And I remember something he said. He probably doesn't, because that's what happens when you get to be a certain age. He probably doesn't. But I remember what he said. He said, Mark, this is how we will behave because we are Christians. And it wasn't a pejorative term. It wasn't a, hey, I'm really sorry you can't do this, but the Bible says no. No, it was a rallying call. This is who we are. We follow God because by his grace we know him. That defines us. It defined Caleb. It's what enabled him to stand in the face of really what was the, the most massive amount of peer pressure I think I've ever seen. There's a whole nation against just a few people. And so I hope it does not come down to this. I hope it, it will not ever occur in your life. But there may become a time when not only will the people in this room fail you, but they will actually do something that is not correct according to God's word. And so then you will have to decide who you follow. You will have to decide whether you follow God or whether you follow people. See, Caleb fully obeyed. We know it. We know how we should respond. John chapter 14 says, If you love me, you obey my commands. So Jesus speaking to his disciples. We've already read in Deuteronomy chapter 6 about loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all your might. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, or in some translation, compels us. See, we are Christians. We must be of a different spirit because we have a different God. We must be different because we have been saved if we truly are. If you truly know God, you are different and you must act that way. You have been adopted into a glorious heavenly family and that comes with it wonderful responsibilities and also challenges to us in our character. I want to point out something else. There's so many things, and I'll close here shortly, but something else that perhaps stuck out to me that I don't know would have stuck out to me 10 or 15 years ago. You see, if we were to flip over to Joshua chapter 14, which we don't have time to right now, uh, but Joshua chapter 14, verse 10, this is Caleb speaking, and he says, Behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years. Now, first off, you're like, wow, he's, he's hung out for 45 years in the desert, and he's ready to go in. That's impressive. But I think here's what's more impressive. Caleb stayed with those people who had said, let's just kill him. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to say to people that want to stone me, I've had enough. I think I'll go somewhere else. I'll find a different group of friends. I'll find a different church. See, we live in a day and age in which, you know, there's this church shopping thing. I, I, don't, I don't like the pastor. I don't like the color of the carpet. I don't, I don't like the coffee they serve. I don't know. And yet Caleb had the ability, by the grace of God, to have stood against them, and then he stayed with those rebellious people for 45 years. Now, the thing that was interesting is that God, in his sovereignty, was taking those people out of the picture. They were dying off. They didn't go into the promised land. But Caleb stayed, and I'm just blown away from that because at times I'm like, yeah, God, I, I, I don't know. These people are stubborn. And yet, this is what Caleb did, and why is that so significant? Because that's what God does with us. God doesn't look at you and say, I gave you 10 years, and your life's still kind of a mess, so I'm just going to revoke your adopted sonship or daughtership, and we're going to move on to somebody better. But what he does is God is faithful and stays with us. And I believe Caleb was following rightly after God when he just stayed with those people who were not easy people. Why? This is part of following God fully. God took notice of Caleb. God said, my servant. My, God said, you are of a different spirit. It's kind of like the Old Testament equivalent of my good and faithful servant that we see in the New Testament. Verse 24 of Numbers 14, one more time. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Caleb, by all other standards, blew it, failed, didn't measure up. And yet by the one standard that mattered, he pleased God. He was a success. My prayer for myself and my prayer for each of you will be that you will learn to fail like Caleb failed because that brings glory and honor to our great God. Let me pray for us.
Father, you are our God. You are good and you are faithful and according to your will, you are working out your plans all around the world and even in this church in Cape Bible Chapel. Lord, we confess that at times we are all weak. We fail each other, we fail you, and yet you never fail us. You are eternally true to your own character. You love and you don't take that back. Lord, thank you for the message that we have seen this morning in the life of one of your servants who was responding to your great character and standing firm on your sure word, even though in the face of many, he was taking the wrong path. Might you give us clarity in our own hearts and minds and souls about the right way to live according to your word, that we might love you first above all things, even if that means that in the eyes of some, we didn't succeed. Lord, we love you. You, you are our God. We want nothing else than to bring you honor and glory. I pray that this morning that you would have encouraged our hearts through your word so that we might learn not to be like Caleb so much as to be like Jesus. We see that Caleb was really following after your character even as Jesus modeled that perfectly on the earth for us. Thank you for this time. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, your Son. Amen. Today as you go home, might you remember the goodness of your God and might you be encouraged and challenged to follow fully after him. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. We are dismissed.